0: Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Park, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the future of AppSec. On today's episode, we have with us Chaitanya Bhatt, who is the Director of Application Security at Credit Karma. Now, prior to Credit Karma, Chaitanya was leading product security teams at companies like eBay, Symantec, and Autodesk. So he's definitely spent a lot of time building AppSec programs. Chaitanya, welcome to the show. Thank you, Harshal. Thanks for having me. Chaitanya, we've talked a lot about the amazing things you've done in AppSec and ProdSec teams in your current company and before. Tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you come into this leadership role at Credit Karma leading AppSec teams? What did you do before this?
1: Sure, Marshall. So I came to US for my master's. I did my master's in computer engineering with security specialization Security has been always a fun thing to do. Uh, something that I was always passionate about, writing some small scripts and some small hacky stuff back in India. And then I did my specialization, started my career as a security analyst at Semantic. and then slowly got to know more about the organization, the industry where security fits in, what's the importance of the cybersecurity. Um, my next role was with Autodesk where... I started getting into product security space, responsible for moving when Autodesk was moving away from CDs to 360 Cloud World. So that's when I joined, got to learn a lot, and then uh, moved to eBay, one of the leading e-commerce sites where I got to get an even bigger exposure, where we built a lot more AppSec programs, more on the AppSec innovative stuffs that we did. That was an excellent learning. And now I am acting as Director of Application Security at Credit Karma. Where we are responsible for protecting member and partner data.
0: That's amazing. I mean, th- those are definitely some of the best AppSec teams or security teams in general uh, in our industry. So now when you think about AppSec or ProdSec within your organization, what is what is the mission of your team? How do you categorize as what AppSec team is responsible for?
1: So here at CK, we are, uh, as an AppSec, we're responsible for protecting member and partner data by fostering secure engineering practices throughout the development lifecycle.
0: Right. So what does that mean though, like in terms of engagement with the rest of the organization, do you work with, you know, the internal software development teams typically, do you work with IT teams or how does that look like?
1: So as I mentioned, the objective is to have secure products in the development pipeline. So as an, as an AppSec team, our responsibility is to engage with our developer community, our, our engineering community at every stage of the software development lifecycle and turn that into a secure software development lifecycle such that right. secure applications are deployed.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So now when you are tasked with something important like converting a software development lifecycle into a secure software development lifecycle, I'm guessing it depends on how the engineering organization or development organization actually does their software development, right? So since we are adding security into their existing process, tell me a little bit about what their process looks like. Is it very waterfall? Is it very agile, a hybrid mix of it? What does that look like if you, if you can uh, paint a picture? So most
1: of the companies have already started moving towards agile. The newer companies are running much faster. Something like CK has always been an agile, agile model because we still run in a startup culture where we, we run faster and uh, we follow smaller scrums and uh, fully into agile
0: model. Right. So is that you know, several releases per day or several releases per week, uh, you know, several releases per month? How does that frequency look like?
1: So we do have a velocity program to make sure the developers run faster, as fast as they can. Hmm. There have been teams who have been pushing changes every day. There have been teams who have been pushing changes a week. But overall, I can definitely say it ranges between day to a week, but a lot faster than the previous organizations right. I have been to.
0: Yeah, and one of the fundamental problems that I see all the time is... The engineering teams are moving faster and faster, which is kind of obvious uh, if you look around the most modern organizations, but security teams are really not well structured to cope up with it, right? So we, we're still uh, getting left on the sidelines of the engineering and development processes in a lot of cases. So what was probably needed is for us security professionals to also transform our processes, the way we do things to be more agile friendly. And that's where one of the topics on like how we engage with development teams, how we engage with developers, that part of the you know, security process comes into the picture. Do you have any views on that engagement model between how AppSec and development organizations should be or what works or what doesn't work in your opinion?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Herschel. So the development world has been evolving ever since. Like different organizations have been following different models, the one that fits them best. Scaling application security is, is always going to be one of the bigger challenges with the faster moving development lifecycle. And this is where your engagement model becomes super, super important because, as I mentioned, some of my previous organizations had a ratio of 1 is 200 one AppSec engineer for at least 100, 150 software developers. It's hard to scale or hard to match to that speed. And that's where your engagement model comes in and becomes your first stepping stone towards scaling your AppSec. Right. There are different perspectives around your engagement model, but something that I personally believe strongly into, having a more embedded partnership model where we try and have our security application security engineers, even though they are part of AppSec, but try to attend, be a part of the engineering teams where they attend their scrums, they attend their meetings, they attend their planning sessions, they attend their retrospection sessions and learn about the domain. We hire them as subject matter experts into some specific verticals of AppSec, but as they start working with the software engineering teams, they become domain experts understanding the whole domain space. And at some point, AppSec moves away from being AppSec as consultation to AppSec as driver.
0: Hmm. So this is very interesting to me. And when one of the very tactical challenges that we ran into in my previous life when we were implementing a similar model is we had this fantastic idea of let's have security champions in every team and also let's have AppSec team members who will attend these scrum meetings and retrospective meetings, right? The problem became that every single dev team had their sprint planning meeting and scrum meeting at exactly the same time on Monday mornings at nine o'clock. So, mm-hmm. so that how do you logistically manage that thing, right? Because, you, you, I mean, you, you don't have the same number of AppSec engineers as the number of teams. So how do you, and that's a very small tactical question. But I mean, the, the bigger point is like, how do you manage, you know, the limited number of AppSec engineers to many dev team representations that they would have to stand for? So, the first step to
1: this, first of all, setting up this kind of an engagement model is a massive cultural shift. It does take time to get to that cultural change in the organization, and it's it's a slower process. But what we have done is we have verticalized, we have created the various verticals and tried to group them in in such a way that there is one person who is responsible for that umbrella of verticals mm-hmm. and which are also closely related, closely associated each other there's a lot of interaction there's a lot of cross collaboration between these verticals so there's a lot of identification that goes into the planning of these verticalizations and then also creating a tier based verticals to identify these are the top tier app critical systems these are some tier two systems which how much of an involvement is required how much of an engagement is required some teams are super security conscious All they need is some guidance and some direction. Some teams requires more hand-holding and more consultation. So those are various factors that get into the planning while you are verticalizing and assigning security engineers to each verticals.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I'm guessing you would have to spend a lot of upfront time about planning those things and also take into account the personalities of people and who they work closely with and who they have better relationships with. Do you ever run into a situation where you've assigned an AppSec person to a group of teams and the teams come back to you, turn back and say, hey, this security engineer is, is assigned dedicated to our teams. Why don't you have that person fix the bugs in the first place? Has that ever happened? Uh, to you? <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> um
1: we have always heard this in AppSec where when can AppSec start fixing bugs for us? When can AppSec start resolving things for us? The challenge that always comes in is the agile world brings so many changes into the whole development pipeline as, as they're running so fast with it. We have always been very clear about the segregation of duties on and segregation of expertise rather than messing up anything or breaking down any of their faster moving cycles. We determine this very carefully and the expectations are set in such a way that you are expert in this area, we have an expertise in this area, and this is how we communicate and divide our roles and responsibilities.
0: Right. So I guess that is one model where since you have dedicated appsec engineers to a certain group of teams do you also have security champions program in place or now where there's a developer who's tasked to do some security related things yeah
1: yeah we do we do have a security champions program and that's that's one of the programs that we leverage a lot in order to scale appsec and and have a better engagement model
0: yeah and there's a fundamental difference in a lot of people how they think of security champions program because a lot of them think that Security champions are people who are trained better on security, and that's where it ends. Are you doing anything more than that in terms of having them do things for security towards the function of security? Maybe not for the team, but are they tasked for anything other than you know getting that special extra training?
1: Yes, they are. So one of the challenges that we always face with the security champions program is these trainings, these programs are more aligned to giving them a generic security training just to train them around why we need security, what are basic our top tens and stuff. But after a certain point, I strongly believe that the security champions program must evolve itself into creating more company-specific trainings where the developers can learn how to do false positive analysis on your SaaS tools. How can you internally pick up some of the low hanging fruits of pen testing Mm -hmm. during your your own internal bug bash. Uh, So that's where they start contributing to us. We cannot have, if there are 120 releases a week, we cannot have 120 pen tests being done. So that's where we leverage our security champions, where we train them, we teach them, and at some point we start recognizing them and providing some incentives for doing pen tests for at least the low hanging fruits or at least for the ones which are less critical systems.
0: Right, right. Do you have a good example of how you incentivize them to spend more time? Because I'm guessing their sprint will be decided by a product manager or an engineering manager who asks them to spend time towards building features and stuff like that. How do they get incentivized to spend time on security?
1: So here at CK what we did is we have our own security champions portal where we track ranks and offer them points. So we actually created this whole framework around security champions program where whenever any of our security champions submits a security vulnerability or when they fix any, any vulnerability they are assigned some points associated to that. And with those scoring systems we have created kind of a leaderboard so And which is open, which is going to be open to the rest of the company. So, you know, these are the top leaders from these teams. So not just the engineers, but their leaders are also recognized of being security conscious and keeping so much education and awareness around security for for their teams too. So that has been so far proving great results for us. And we are starting to see more engagement where people come in and engage with us. They want to learn more. They come up with some very valid questions. And at certain point, we want to see more bugs, more pen testing, or more issues coming from our security champions than
0: what we identify and we feel. We that is protect. so cool. That is amazing. Right? That's potentially the best outcome you can expect from a security champions program.
1: Exactly. And And now we have an excellent way to measure the success of security champions program by having a tracker in place or having these point location system in place that can give us an accurate way of determining, oh, there's this much engagement from security champions into us. So even though we are lesser AppSec people, we basically replicate ourselves by having security champions in place.
0: Right. Fantastic. So, So we talked about, you know, having AppSec team members dedicated towards helping a group of identified dev teams, you have your security champions program in place. So those are the two ways of how, you know, engagement between AppSec and development teams work. Are there any other things that you have maybe with leadership or any other forums of, you know, bringing security and development teams together?
1: One of the things where we can bring them much closer, and that's always been our top priority, and that's how we believe that we are moving a step closer to scaling ourselves. Another bigger initiative that helps is automating some of the AppSec practices and how do we ensure we shift left into a lot of our practices. And that is another key aspect of our engagement model and engaging with developer community where not just our team, but even developers can come in and contribute some of the automation, how our security practices enforced during their life cycle.
0: So tell me a little bit more about that, this topic of security practice enforcement in your earlier in the life cycle, generally what people call a shift left. What does that look like in reality? So people always believe that uh, shift
1: left is just giving this early detection, creating that early information for developers. Uh, right. Don't come late to the game. In, in a very easy words, they call it don't come late to the game. In true sense, it is shifting left is early detection, not just early detection, but also early remediation. There are ways you can shift as left as you can. I know GitHub has a lot of capabilities now available in itself with, their, with its advanced security model, or um, they have enabled actions where you can enable your in house security capabilities while the code is committed. You can shift further left by utilizing some of the plugins that is being installed into your IDEs. So the security scanning is done while you're coding. It's also more on the adoption of it because as you move left, there is a higher chance of getting less understanding and lesser visibility because of this whole agile world where I mentioned about more scrums, faster deployments, smaller changes. So it's hard to get the overall context of an application and that could result into more false positives. Right. So you have to find that optimum place in the development lifecycle. And that varies organization to organization on how your CI CD world looks like.
0: Right. So there is there's is this element of, you know, how do we actually implement controls realistically? And you you alluded to this earlier, which is most people tend to think of shift left as shifting scanning left or early detection rather, but obviously that's not the end goal. The goal being not just detect, but also prevent things if possible or remediate as soon as possible, right? So how do you get from you know just orchestrating a bunch of detection tools earlier in the lifecycle to actually helping the developers write secure code, actually enforcing or implementing controls implementation or standardization or whatever you want to call it, paved roads, guardrails, whatever you want to call it. How do you actually implement those things? Give me a realistic example.
1: As you do more reviews and as you move away from manual reviews to more of an automated scanning solution there's this terminology called security as code where you start verification validation at the code level some things can be enforced at the code level some things where you can attain some confidence and some things are more around providing constant warnings and feedback In my personal opinion, providing constant feedback while developers are coding has always been helpful. Where SaaS tools acting as more of like false positive as a service, how do we make sure that rather than blocking them or stopping them from moving further, we start giving them warnings around, hey, maybe what you're trying to do could result into XSS. So, hey, how about, What you're trying to code here might result into injection, could result into injection. So giving them that warning, and as obviously, as I mentioned, we have some security standards and patterns that are being created. We have security champions in place that is constantly evolving and educating our developers. Giving them these kind of warnings while they code always helps them to ensure and to achieve that level of maturity and early heads up on this might be a vulnerability as you move forward in the development life cycle, or this could result into a potential security issue as you move forward in the development life cycle. So that has always helped in the enforcement cycle.
0: Yeah, but when you mention, you know, provide these warnings to developers, are you thinking of something other than static analysis tools, or are you talking about static analysis tools themselves? providing this so tool.
1: so static analysis tools can result into this but these kind of warnings and stuff are more of like off the shelf recommendation that you'll have to start providing and that again as i said with the different environment the different culture that every organization has it mm. varies it it varies and sometimes i have seen some organizations in the past who used to provide these recommendations every time you commit the code So every time you commit the code, they won't stop you, but you could see the list of potential vulnerabilities while you are committing the code. Maybe before you push your code into production, you might be stopped or you might be asked to fix some of the criticals and stuff, but it's not that you were not aware of it. You were already informed about it based on the any policy violations or any standard practices that have not been followed early in the development lifecycle.
0: Right. So do you guys build something in-house to implement these types of warnings? Because it sounds like they are very custom to your environment.
1: Correct. So we have something in-house built at CK, which we use to provide these kind of warnings. And for some of the security standards and practices where we have attained that confidence in detection model, we are slowly starting to enforce it at the code level too.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because we had always struggled, and I see a lot of people struggle with this aspect of, I'll give you a very simple example, that when developers are building their own Docker containers, you want to enforce a control that all of the images should be based on an approved image that's sourced and that's stored in your registry, in your organization's registry. But uh, enforcing that control and monitoring for that control in in the pipeline itself, it's kind of tricky. I mean, it's not very simple to do that, especially when the team that's thinking and building that control or interested in enforcing that control is a security team, who potentially doesn't even have the visibility into all the different pipelines that the dev teams are working on.
1: Yeah, so I actually call this more of like a next gen DevSecOps. We already had a known terminology called DevSecOps where people knew that security needs to start now working with ops team to to move away from that blocker mode to that facilitator mode where we start running at the same pace as developers. But the next gen DevSecOps is more around creating a horizontal layer of all the security vulnerabilities that you have been capturing during your life cycle. And at some point in your CI CD, creating various gates. It could be during the image provisioning level. It could be during merging. It could be during adding some tags on the production. It could be just before you get into an experimentation mode. So this is how you engage in the whole pipeline where security is not just one step in the CI CD pipeline, but acts as a horizontal pipeline where you might be reached out at various stages in the CI CD where Maybe at image provisioning level, you need you just need details about your container scanning. Maybe at the at merging branches, all you need is some static code details. Maybe at the, before you get into experimentation mode, you need details about dynamic scanning. Hmm. So this is how you create multiple gates where security is not just one step, but it's a multiple step in the whole development lifecycle and deployment.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's where we need to go because without having those controls in place or those checkpoints in place, it's really, really difficult to not just get assurance of what is going through your pipeline, but even helping the developers understand what is expected out of them. Because if you, if you don't tell them at the right time, at the right place within the CI pipeline, they just don't know. I mean, they're not going to go and read a 15-page PDF document, you know, understanding security's policies. They're not going to do it. So you have to communicate them in their language. And they understand what is needed to pass the CI gates, to pass the CI checks. So they get that. Exactly. So if we integrate security at those checkpoints, it becomes very native for them. Exactly. Yep. Now, there's also, uh, I mean, I know you spent a lot of time around things like threat modeling and risk reviews and all of those things as well. So those are traditionally very manual processes, very manual ways for AppSec teams to conduct assessments. Have you guys figured out any interesting ways to make it and adopt it to agile development practices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So back when I was working at eBay, we had developed our own security framework for threat modeling in agile world. And this was also one of the talks that I presented back in 2019 at one of the OWASP conferences on how every organization can move to that model where you can build your own framework, you can get into that level of automation. How can you do that? By a simple chatbot solution that could help you address at least low hanging 80% of the threat assessment and determine if that would require any further manual intervention. So you don't slow down development team if you feel they are doing everything. So you actually create a happy path for a secure design. And if they are following all the right practices, there is no reason to slow them down. Another benefit that comes in for the organizations who have a managed stack who usually rely on their in-house frameworks for the development, engaging more with the framework team to bake in those security requirements into the framework also helps in reducing that manual threat modeling steps. Because now, if you see security by code, is all all that it's going to look for if you have turned off any of those security protections. If you haven't, there's no reason to slow you down and bring you for a two week long review process.
0: Right. Yeah. And there's an argument around it, which, I mean, you can potentially reframe this as, as saying that the fastest path is the secure path where security controls are already built in, right? Like if you don't follow the standard pattern, then you have to go through this other checks and balances, which could potentially take more time. So it's just easier for everyone for you to just adopt the, uh, the standard exactly. framework. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just, uh, a few weeks ago, I had uh, Travis McPeak on the on the podcast, and he was talking about sort of similar things where. They use Spinnaker for deployments and security teams built controls in Spinnaker itself. So before you deploy, your security guardrails and checkpoints are built into Spinnaker. Uh, and it's just native for everyone. They, they just get through it. So you don't have to chase around different dev teams, asking them to fix things or you know, adopt security controls. It's just built into the deployment pipeline. So it's just native. So, exactly. Exactly. Chidanand, we talked about a lot of different things. I mean, we covered several different aspects around, you know, how to engage with developers, your engagement models, to building guardrails and pipelines and things like that. I'm sure your appsec team does a lot more than this as well. If you were to categorize, you know, the core pillars or functions of your appsec team, how would you describe those key functions?
1: So, at a very high level, I have bucketized the various functions and various verticals of AppSec for what my team does into five major boxes. One is on the security trainings and governance, where the team gets involved into writing a lot of standards, patterns, policies, training stuff. There's more on the consultation piece where we do a lot of design reviews. Uh, stuff. There's code security. This is where our major focus has been because end of the day, a lot of these standards policies are being enforced or at least validated. All the design review recommendations are being validated at the code level, and that's where our code security is one of the most important tracks. Where a lot of emphasis has been put into creating in-house scanners, in-house monitoring, and we've been partnering a lot with GitHub and our ops team to create that checks at various levels during the lifecycle of software developers. And then we have uh, dynamic security, which is more focused around dynamic scanning, and making sure runtime pen testing and all those things are done internally. And the last box is around the runtime security, which focus on into real-time detection and something which is more identified post-deployment is done.
0: Yeah. That's uh that sounds like a very comprehensive appsec program. I'm sure it it took uh, your team a long time to get there. Let's just say hypothetically mm-hmm. if if our audience member is listening to this and they they are just starting to build out an appsec program from the from scratch let's say there's almost nothing. Mm-hmm. What do you suggest as you know, the sequencing out of these five buckets, how would you sequence them in in order of priority? And you're, you're looking at, you know, almost a brand new program.
1: I feel the security governance and training is for someone who is just starting the program, introducing this to an organization first would require more of an awareness, having those policies and standards and governance in place. People need to know what's the happy path. So educating that happy path to everyone, bringing that cultural change of security first mindset, while uh, security is everyone's responsibility kind of an awareness model, takes time. So my, my recommendation is to start with a stronger security champions program where a one excellent security trainer could replicate himself into thousands of security champions uh, who can help you into running faster and embedding yourselves much faster into and they can represent AppSec in their own teams so that would be my first focus and as I said like the second most important thing that I strongly believe I've been focusing a lot is into the code security track where start identifying these patterns at the code level where you start detecting or validating a lot of your recommendations. We recommend a lot of things during consultation phases, but how do we validate if they are being followed or how they, if we even know if the right practices are being followed or not? So not meant to block anyone, but at least invest in detection and visibility first when you start a program and then move towards enforcing and remediating it but having that stronger layer of detection and visibility is going to help you improve your program or even grow your program in understanding various gaps.
0: That's amazing. Those are really good recommendations. It speaks to your experience doing this several times over and over again. Chetanya, this is all the time we have in today's episode. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of this.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Harshal. It was really awesome talking to you and sharing the experiences.
0: Thank you. Until we see you the next time. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.